Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Either you are with us or you are with the terrorists. If you've got health care already, then you can keep your plan if you are satisfied with it. Donald Trump is not going to be president of the United States. Take it to the bank. Together, we will make America great again. We shall never surrender. Never surrender. It's what you've been waiting for all day. Buck Sexton with America Now. Join the conversation. Call Buck toll free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. Sharp mind, strong voice. Buck Sexton. Team Buck, welcome to the Freedom Hut Freestyle Friday. We are here. We have much to discuss, much going on. A little preview. We'll start with the last first or later on in the show. I'm uh, going to be talking to you about how today is Bastille Day, a little history of that. We'll take some time on a Friday to talk history. Uh, also, we'll be joined by one of the foremost experts in the world in recovering uh, incredibly valuable works of art, including the bill, uh, an original copy of the Bill of Rights, uh, a, a man who can get into the details of that. And it's it's the Thomas Crown affair, but in real life, my friends. And because uh, well, there was a story about... Uh, over $500 million of art, this was in Fox News earlier in the week, that is, some say is, is in Ireland after a, an art heist decades ago. We'll discuss that. We'll also be joined by our friend Jimmy Fallon to just give us his thoughts on the week. And uh, I have an article written by a feminist that you'll, you'll have to hear to believe. Um, it's incredible in how uh, hostile, wrongheaded, and uh, really, uh, really evil it is it's a, a mother writing about her own sons it's 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 appalling stuff but it's interesting because it's a window into the mind of the contemporary feminist left uh, that is just trying to ruin the lives of as many women and, and now as we see other people as, as they possibly can as, as an ideology it is deeply destructive so a lot of different things to bring into the mix here on the show today oh and of course all of you, your phone calls Friday, would love to hear from you, 844-900-BUCK, 844-900-2825. Russia fatigue is a real thing. You know, it's if you work in the media, if you're somebody that spends your time trying to sift through what's uh, a waste of time uh, from what's important, what we should be talking about, the, the domination of Russia in the headlines is like nothing else I've, I've ever seen. Uh, there's so many stories about every different angle of this reported meeting with Donald Trump Jr., Jared Kushner, Paul Manafort, Ms. Veselnitskaya. Um, and now we are told there are more in the room. That's the big story from today. I'm still having a hard time with uh, why I'm supposed to be upset about this from the conservative perspective. Look, I, I get why Democrats and why the media that's been pushing the narrative for so long views this as an incredibly important story. I understand why they, because it's the first time they can point to anything that's not just really speculation and, and complete thin air and say, well, this could be indicative of a bunch of other things. But I'm seeing a lot of conservatives saying, oh, this is, uh, th this is bad. And I, I say, well, it's, it was unwise. It wasn't sound decision-making, but it doesn't strike me as evil. I don't understand why it's such a, a big deal or why it's such a problem in theory. I know now because of all the Russia conspiracy talk and everything else and collusion. 
I don't understand why getting information about Hillary Clinton from any other party, if it's true information and it's something that should be known, why is that why is that an issue? I'm 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 confused about about this. And of course, once you add into it uh the collusion, uh the the seeming Seemingly uh, similar effort to get information uh, that's gone on in the Ukraine. And, you know, you tie all this stuff together and you say to yourself, what am I really supposed to be so upset about here? Uh, I I still don't see it. I'm waiting for it. Uh, I'm annoyed that the administration seems to make blunder after blunder on this story, but I don't see anything truly nefarious in it. And I, I mean this. If I saw it, I would say it. I just don't see it. I think that they're novices to this game of politics, which is just a statement of fact, really. But they they don't have an understanding. When I say they, the the Kushners and the and the Donald Trump Juniors, they, they don't understand. They don't understand uh, international intrigue, and they don't, you know, you, you talk to them about you're sitting down with somebody. Is that person a a counterintelligence officer of of the Russian state, as is now being reported? They don't understand this stuff. They don't know this stuff. Now, not understanding is not an excuse. This is where somebody would probably help me. Buck, ignorance of the law is no excuse. I always say to those people, by the way, that given the complexity and also the level of interpretation in the federal criminal code in this country, that, in fact, ignorance of the law probably should be or could be in some circumstances a <laughs> an excuse. Uh, but but here's the here's the latest on this. And I should note, by the way, you know, on, on Fox.com right now, FoxNews.com right now, the main story is about Jane Sanders and her FBI probe. But on CNN, the main story is, of course, about the uh, Russia meeting, which they're now saying had additional people, at least eight people in the room, according to CNN and other sites. Here's the, here's the latest on it, and let's break it down together. Let's see. And by the way, if you think that I'm missing something, I want to know. Uh, you know, like I say, it's Freestyle Friday. I have a lot of things that I want to talk to you about today, but I don't, I don't want to have a rigid show structure in mind. So if you, if you call in, we'll chat about it, whatever your thoughts are on this. I'm, I've been talking to friends of mine, both in media and in my, uh, my non-media life, about this whole story. and Because I don't want to be one of these people who's— uh, embarrassing himself by defending the, defending things that either shouldn't be defended or can't be defended, uh, which is already happening at, at different points in the in the whole saga of Trump versus the media. People will say, "Well, you know, Trump did this; it was brilliant." No, I mean that probably wasn't a good idea. Um, so I, I don't want to fall into that trap. So I try to be testing and retesting my assumptions. I try to make sure that I'm staying on on track here with. What, what at least I believe is the truth. And uh, looking at this issue and looking at what actually happened in this meeting, I don't see what the big problem is unless you believe that all the other pieces are just waiting to be put in place, unless you already believe that there's Russia collusion, uh, which I still don't think would be criminal, but it could be a political crime, whatever. Unless you believe that, though, this meeting to me doesn't, seemed to be that big of a deal uh and and i i'm i'm trying to wrap my head around why some fellow conservatives who are out there um seem so convinced that it is a really big deal i i i don't see it here's here's the update though from cnn today on this keep in mind it's cnn so you know it is what it is 
The June 2016 meeting at Trump Tower with Donald Trump Jr., Jared Kushner, and Paul Manafort included at least eight people. Um, The revelation of additional participants comes as the Associated Press first reported Friday that a Russian-American lobbyist named Renat Akhmetshin said he also attended the June 2016 meeting with Donald Trump Jr. CNN has reached out to Akhmetshin for comment. Uh, so far acknowledged in attendance, Trump Jr., Kushner, Manafort, Russian lawyer Velzelnitskaya, Akhmetshin, and publicist Rob Goldstone. So here's what you need to know about this, or what they want you to know about this Akhmetshin guy. He's a registered lobbyist for Veselnitskaya's organization, which has focused on lobbying Washington to overturn the Magnitsky sanctions, according to lobbying records. The Magnitsky Act allows the U.S. to withhold visas and freeze the assets of Russians thought to have violated human rights. Veselnitskaya founded a group purporting to seek the removal of Moscow's ban on the adoption of Russian children by U.S. citizens, which put which was put in place in retaliation for the Magnitsky Act. So, all right, uh, I, I'm like I said, I'm trying to follow this, and we're, it's easy to get. Lost in the weeds here, I think, pretty pretty quickly. Um, but I, I also want to say that you have to try to follow this stuff closely, because then you'll find out. I mean, Bloomberg View, I was just reading from CNN, but Eli Lake over at Bloomberg View has looked into more of the connections going on here. And, you know, you had that—they uh, had Christopher Steele, who's that former British spy, who pulled together that dossier on Trump— And there are very strange connections that you see when you look into this more between between GPS, uh, which is this organization that was looking into, uh, well, organization that's essentially an oppo research firm, um, and this lawyer, Veselnitskaya, uh, Fusion GPS, pardon me, Fusion GPS, and this lawyer, Veselnitskaya, and something's there, there's more information that we need to make sure that we understand what the full extent of all these connections are but there's something incredibly shady going on here uh it's very strange that uh this all happened you got Veselnitskaya involved the lawyer she's involved in trying to lobby over the Magnitsky Act which remember is to punish people it's it had to do with this guy who uncovered all this Russian corruption, and in Russia, you uncover corruption. You can measure the, your life with an egg timer, and they threw him in prison. He was tortured. He was murdered, and Congress passed the Magnitsky Act. Putin hates it because it punishes some of his uh, his cronies and, and the very wealthy Russian oligarchs that Putin needs to keep somewhat happy um, and— you know, Veselnitskaya was at—she's, the remember, the Russian lawyer. I know, I'm, all, I'm, all, I'm trying to keep it all straight as I'm drawing these connections here, but it is, it is a tangled web. Uh, she was at this congressional hearing last year on uh, Magnitsky, and she was meeting with this—she uh, met with Trump Jr., as we know, and she apparently brought in this guy, Akhmetshin, and you just have all this, all this stuff coming together, and— we don't. I'm, what I'm trying to get at here is that there's something that we don't know that will make all of this make a lot more sense. Meaning there are facts that still have to be uncovered that will establish for us what was really going on here. Because this doesn't make sense right now. There's just stuff that doesn't add up. It smells funky. It smells fishy. And 
I think that the uh, the information, by the way, that keeps coming out about this, the press has clearly had this for a long time about this meeting, and they've been digging into it, and they've prepared. They've had this timeline ready. They've prepared all this stuff to pull together. Um, so there's a lot going on here that is in the process of discovery. The, the press is letting us know what they want us to know. And in the process, I think we're going to find out that there's information that they were hoping would not come to light, and it will. But bottom line to all this is I just don't see what the problem is here for this meeting other than it doesn't it doesn't look good, but the media is the one telling the media are out there telling us it doesn't look good. I don't see this as the huge issue that everyone, well, not everyone, but that a lot of people who are out there do. And I, I don't want to spend too much of our time on it today because I think that we are reaching, we've certainly reached Russia fatigue for the week. I'm reaching Russia fatigue overall. You know, this is this is really turned into a form of mass hysteria now, and you have to be anti-Russia as an enemy state. You have to say that right away. We should consider military action against Russia. Russia is the greatest enemy the U.S. faces in the world. Russia hacked our election. Russia this, Russia that. It's it's out of control. This is actually when dangerous decision-making is often made. It is when the clamoring crowds demand dramatic action. That's when mistakes can be made. And you're seeing this now, even from Republicans. Oh, we've got to do so much more about Russia. Maybe we need to cool our jets a little bit here. Just just chill a bit and make sure we fully understand all of the different players and all the different pieces that are in play. And understand that the, the media that's releasing this to you has an agenda. They've known about this for a while. And they're trying to build towards a narrative because they have rested their entire whatever you think of their credibility on the fulfillment of this promise that there will be a day of reckoning for the Trump administration based on Russia collusion that will effectively nullify Hillary's loss and bring the Democrats back into power. That is the promise that the mainstream media has made to Democrats in America. And these stories, this drip, drip of stories about this meeting are all part of that effort. Uh, so, oh, it's also Action Movie Quote Friday, by the way. Action. If it bleeds, we can kill it. Movie. Come to the coast. We get together. Have a few laughs. Quote free your mind. Fridays. Action Movie Quote Fridays. 844-900-BUCK. 844-900-2825. Light up those lines, team. We'll be right back. the connections I was trying to get at before, I just want to be be clear about it. Fusion GPS is behind the Trump dossier. Veselnitskaya, the Russian lawyer in the meeting with Donald Trump Jr. that's caused all this this furor this week, was uh, showing up at Congress and was and was very much involved in trying to get the repeal of the Magnitsky Act. Fusion GPS was also part of a campaign to get the repeal of the Magnitsky Act. Fusion GPS was doing work to that end. Now, you can tell me that you think that that is entirely a a coincidence, but that would seem to be overlooking uh all of a sudden you've got an anti you've got an anti-Trump oppo group out there um that pulls together this dossier. This is why Fusion GPS by the way is going to be at this Senate hearing next week um but this is there there's something going on here 
Um, I, I can't tell you. Infusion GPS, of course, says it has no. Uh, it has released statements to the press, according to Bloomberg, claiming it had no knowledge of the Veselnitskaya Trump Jr. meeting, and its work on the Trump dossier did not intersect with its work on behalf of Prevazone. Okay, so Prevazone is a firm that was uh, a holding company that paid a six million dollar fine. Uh, having to do with the Magnitsky Act. And so there's just, at a minimum, you've got a lot of shady connections going on here of different groups trying to get Russian interests going uh, or trying to push for Russian interests. And so that's not as unusual as the media would have you believe. But also, it, it just seems surprising, doesn't it, that, that Fusion GPS, the oppo research group that pulled together the dossier, was also involved with the Magnitsky Act. And the Magnitsky Act is the pretext for the meeting with the Russian lawyer with Donald Trump Jr. You see what I'm saying? That you know, you pull all those things together and you think, so that's just a coincidence, huh? Of all the Oppo research groups in the world, it's an Oppo research group that has involvement and part of a campaign that is the very pretext used by the lawyer, Veselnitskaya, to get the meeting with Trump. I guess it's just, you know, nothing. I can't tell you what it means. It just it seems a little funky to me. Dimitri in Mississippi on WBUV. What do you think? What they doing? Oh, got some interference. I'm sorry. Go ahead. I lost you for a second there. What's going on, Dimitri? Well, I still don't understand why Democrats hating Russians that much. I'm from Russia, and this is the most peaceful nation in the world. All Russians were fighting against uh, Nazis, terrorists, and everything. Why Democrats are building this, uh, uh, I don't know how to call it properly, against Russia? So well, well, they're, they they're saying Russia? that Russia is an enemy state, Dimitri, and they're saying that why? we should treat Russia like we're almost in a state of Cold War again, and that's just nonsense. Why don't they bring China, Iran, any other countries but Russia? I know. You'll, you'll notice that the only the only stories that we're hearing about shady contacts have to do with with you know Russian lobbyists or former Russian government officials or whatever it may be. There are a lot of other countries out there that pose much. Well, there there are other countries that pose uh, problems just as big as anything Russia poses for us in the short term. And exactly. and there are areas you know now to say hey maybe we can work with. It's fascinating, is it, Dimitri? Under the Obama administration. Work with Iran was a mantra. It was work with Iran or war. That's what we were told. It was a false choice. But now if you say, well, let's work with Russia on some things, it's you're a coward, you're a sellout, you're a quizzling, uh, you know, you're, you're doing Trump's Kremlin bidding. I mean, it's just crazy what's out there. Exactly. And why are they trying to build another war? They're not going to win against Russians. It's read the history books. Learn the history. Well, I mean— we do, no, nobody wants a war. We'll, we'll, we'll leave it at that. Nobody wants exactly. a war. Um, uh, anyway, Dimitri, thanks for calling in. Uh, what are your thoughts on all this? 844-900-2825. want to talk about the uh, DNC in the Ukraine for a few. I haven't done that yet this week, so maybe that would be interesting. And then we'll talk about one of the craziest things written by a feminist in a long time that I've read. And, and that is saying a lot, my friends. We'll be right back. The 
the Freedom Hut rocks online, too. You can hang out with Team Buck anytime. Plus, get Buck's latest news and analysis. Go to BuckSexton.com. That's BuckSexton.com. Are you not entertained? The Buck is back. Take some calls. Todd in North Carolina, WPTI. What's going on, Todd? Not much. How are you doing today, Buck? I'm all right, man. Thanks for calling in. Well, I'm just calling to say I'm just tired of the Russia thing altogether. I mean, there's nothing there. <laughs> I'm still waiting to be wowed by the uh, the bombshells that the media is going to drop on all of us with this stuff. And, and so far, I'm like, no, I just I don't see it. Well, I agree. It's like every day you're waking up breathless. Like, oh my God, what's going to happen today? <laughs> you know, what what are we really going to find out? That that Trump and his people told the Russians to hack into Hillary's or not Hillary, but to hack into uh, Podesta and the DNC servers. I I don't think we're ever going to find that out. And short of that, I don't really. What else could we even find out that we would care about? I, I don't know. Well, I'm kind of, I'm kind of curious as to why the DNC hasn't handed over their server. Yeah, well, they said they handled. They said they 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 fixed the glitch. Is is basically what they've told everybody, but I don't think that's the case. I think that involved hammers and everything else. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Isn't it funny, by the way, how quickly we forget that when Hillary had the whole email scandal and that was under investigation, uh, they th- there were people that were literally taking hammers to blackberries. That's unusual behavior. Yeah, but there was no intent. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I I usually wipe and then sell my old phone or I give it back to my employer or whatever. I, I tend not to try to, to take it out, like, in office space when they take out the the uh, printer and they beat it with baseball bats, which is one of my favorite scenes in that movie. You know, I, I don't do that with my old phone unless there was a real problem. So it's it's interesting, isn't it, Todd, that people, you know, the, the double standards that work here. But I agree with you, man. I don't, I don't see it as a big thing. You have an action movie quote for me? I do. All right, let's let's see what you got. All right. Here it is. I take pleasure in gutting you, boy. Uh, Forrest. Wait, no, 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 no. No, The Rock, The Rock, The Rock. You got it. You're good. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> there we go. Thank you, sir, uh, for calling uh, in, Todd. Hey. Appreciate it. Jim oh, in. Jim in. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Todd. Jim in Pennsylvania, W-R-A-K. Hey, how you doing, Bach? I'm good. What's going on, Jim? Well, I'm I'm calling in. I'm a I voted for Trump, and I am really, really sick and tired of hearing the Russia stuff. Uh, personally, I think if it took Russia's help to get Trump elected, we should all be grateful because it's the only chance we've had to elect somebody that could possibly be a voice for us. Well, you so see, that's I, that's where no the huge separation, that. Jim, happens here. The Democrats are so upset about this, and they want everyone else to be so upset about this because they think this is—I've heard people on TV, you know, revere Democrats say this is like the crime of the century and all. And and, and the crime—ultimately, let's say everything that they said happened or they think happened happened. The only consequence was Hillary lost the election, which half the country is like, yeah, that's a good thing. So yeah. it's hard to get too upset yeah. about it no matter what. I mean, just on, on an emotional level, I understand people would say, oh, well, it's wrong, and if they colluded with Russia, fine. But, you know, pe- people didn't die here. You know what I'm saying? I mean, this was it was a political right. contest. It was close. And uh, look, this isn't the first one. Look at them with, with Bush and Gore and Florida and all a bunch of crybabies. And they made the whole movie about Recount on HBO, and it's 
total nonsense. Yeah. Every recount that ever happened, they lost, and yet they just can't let it go, you know? I let it when Obama won uh, twice. I wasn't like, oh, you know, he cheated. It's okay. Obama won twice. Now we got to live with Obama's president. That's just the deal. Yeah, but the only thing is, is the regular people didn't get to decide any of that. That was all decided before we ever went to the polls. And and I'm, if the Russians had anything to do with us getting Trump, I'm all for it. The other thing is, if the, if the Democrats keep obstructing, they don't give two two craps about us they just care about themselves and if they continue with that i would like to see everybody that voted for trump switch to a democrat party and in the next elections vote against every incumbent there is and get rid of them because there's enough there's enough republicans that voted for trump that if we switch to democrats we could get those hard heads out of office and that's that's the way i feel all right, Jim, thank you very much for calling in. So since you're, you're, you're telling me you're sick of Russia, and I agree with you, why don't we talk about Ukraine? That sounds like fun. It's nearby, a neighbor, formerly part of the Soviet Union. People used to say all the time, the Ukraine, but now have learned that it's in fact just Ukraine. I had a Ukrainian friend in D.C., and uh, she told me to stop saying the Ukraine because I used to say that too. So it's just Ukraine which means borderland, and it's an interesting, uh, well, the, the, the back and forth between who controls Ukraine and uh, whether it's under the dominion of, of Moscow or if it's on its own. It's a fascinating history here. They also had the third most or for, third or fourth most nuclear weapons in the world after the fall of the Soviet Union because a lot of them were, Ukraine's very large, and they gave them up in what was known as the Budapest memorandum and or the Budapest Agreement. And that said that the U.S., the U.K., and yes, Russia would protect Ukraine and its territorial integrity. So it was basically like, don't worry, man, give us your nukes. We totes got your back. Nothing bad's going to happen to you, but definitely give up your nukes. They gave up their nukes and fast forward a couple of decades, Russia is carving up pieces of Ukraine and taking Crimea and causing all kinds of problems. So there's been some very nasty back and forth. Ukraine is also, by the way, where you had that uh, that poisoning, that dioxin poisoning in- incident, where you had this uh, this young this younger uh, politician who was uh, up for up for uh, I think re-election at the time. I'm forgetting. This is like fifth. We're going back now many years, and that he got poisoned and it left him very scarred. Uh, but Ukraine is a battlefield, a political battlefield between the West, the U.S., NATO. And Russia and Russia views Ukraine as very necessary uh, buffer state, really, as a necessary buffer state between everybody else and Russia. And so they want a very they want a client state. They want a friendly state. They want something along the lines of Belarus, which is another small former Soviet country that is very cozy with Moscow on their borders. They don't want NATO aligned pro Western you know, democratic ideals and value states on their border because they view it as a threat to their own uh, territorial integrity. Now, from our perspective, we're like, why? We would never invade Russia. From the Russian perspective, it's, oh, really? We used to have this whole thing called the Soviet Union, which was a lot bigger, and then a whole bunch of that got picked off because of our collapse. So, you know, it's all a question of perspective here, folks. And in fact, if you go back to the uh, geostrategists uh, like Mackinder 
at the turn of the or the early 20th century, uh, Russia is defined by territorial by its vastness, but also its territorial insecurity, meaning that it it, it is not bordered by land boundaries or or not or not bordered by uh, by water or or land boundaries like like mountain ranges. Really, Russia is just bordered by enemy states all around. We never think of it this way, right? You know, who are our borders? Canada, love you, Canada. You're like our you're like our brother up north with maple syrup and lots of good hockey teams. You know, Mexico, warm relations between the U.S. and Mexico. I mean, we got our, we got our problems sometimes, the whole drug trafficking thing and everything. I get that, but you know, overall, pretty. And then to our east and west, we got big oceans, right? That's helpful. Geography is destiny. It, it well, at least it's part of destiny. It, it matters. Russia has Japan. China, uh, the Middle East, and Europe. Th- those are its neighbors. Those are its borders. So there's a there's a psychological territorial insecurity at the heart of Russian uh, foreign policy and, and uh, geostrategy. And, you know, while we think of them as, because in recent, uh, well, in the World War II and post-era, Russia, and with its uh, enhanced industrialization and vast po- vast size and population, became a major military uh, superpower. But before then, I mean, Russia used to get, you know, used to get picked off and carved up, too. And the Russians were fighting against, uh, the Russians were fighting against the Swedes. Yeah, believe it or not, the Swedes at one point, the Russians were really going at, after each other. In the time of Peter the Great, which, if you're looking for an excellent biography to read this summer, uh, Robert Massey's biography of Peter the Great is fantastic. And it starts off with, like, uh, a palace coup, young Peter, the the guards that he knew and grew up with, and, like, the tutors. It's very Game of Thrones. They're, like, getting, like, ripped apart in the palace. I mean, it's crazy. You got you got to read the You got to read it. It's really, it's really compelling stuff. But uh, the Swedes were like, I mean, they were actually a— a very serious military power at the time. We don't think of it that way now, but dude, the Vikings, remember? They, they were pretty, pretty intense. They were legit back in the day. And so the Russians have fought against, they've been fighting against the Swedes and against the invading steppe nomadic peoples like the, the Mongols and, uh, you know, the, the Tatars and, you, you know, they fought wars with Japan and China. I mean, you just, you go, there's, they're fighting everybody all the time. That's Russian history has always been a, a series of, of uh, of border battles and territories gained and territories lost. That's just the way that it's. That's where they've been. You could say that's true a lot of European states too. I know, but Russia is huge, so it's coming into contact not just with neighbors but with different civilizations. So Ukraine is in the middle of all this. And why am I telling about Ukraine? Well, maybe because there was a story that probably the folks who wrote it didn't think would be quite as relevant when they did, but a story about a Democrat operative running around in Ukraine, trying to help the Hillary campaign, working with the Ukrainian government, working with, in fact, our own embassy, and doing all kinds of crazy stuff over there that you would think would be an issue. You would think maybe would cause um, cause some some problems. I'm sorry, working in the Ukrainian embassy, I should say, here in this country. I'll, I'll, give, you, I'll give you the details. I'll give you all the details. Ohio on WMAN. Hey, Larry. Hello. Yellow. Hey, what's up? Hey, Buck. Enjoy your show. Thank you, Larry. This, you uh, 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 Trump-Russian meeting, to me, the liberal 
media and the Democrats are trying to make chicken salad out of chicken excrement. There ain't nothing there. They had a meeting. Big deal. What come out of it? As far as we know now, although something may develop, you know, next week, nothing. Yeah, I, I don't I don't see what I what? I'm struggling to see how unless you think that this is just the beginning of a lot more, if this is all there uh-huh. is, then what's the big problem? I mean, I I do wish that we wouldn't have to hear more about the meeting from people other than those who are at the meeting. I wish that they would come clean. I think that's uh, and come clean is maybe not the right. I just wish they would have full disclosure about the meeting so that we wouldn't have to suffer through more days of a news cycle where the media gets to determine what we all get to see and read and think well, about, you know? Loretta Lynch is the one that extended her visa to me. What I've heard, she was in here on a temporary visa for like 90 days or whatever. And when it was up, Loretta Lynch uh, extended it for, well, however long. I just don't understand also the motivation for this woman, Veselnitskaya, to uh, to lie about having information so that she could push them on the Magnitsky Act. I mean, that just seems... What, what is that Magnitsky Act? Mag- the Magnitsky Act allows for sanctions. Uh, it's, it's sanctions on people that are human rights, ab- that, that are, uh, human rights abusers uh, in Russia. So, you know, and, and it means that people's assets can be seized and... Uh, but, you know, you're right, Larry. I should do a deeper dive for everybody on the Magnitsky Act so we kind of know. It's it's for this guy who exposed that. corruption. You know, this is a big thing. And, Larry, thank you for calling in. Shields high. I mean, corruption in Russia is the way that business is done. Uh, as I said before, it is, it is an evolving mafia state. Uh, and the government's control of and attachments uh, and interests in private uh well i shouldn't they're not really private businesses but but in business um they are uh omnipresent so you know there's a lot of russian government activity in a lot of the businesses and vice versa um and that means that you're going to have all kinds of of crossover so i just don't see uh, oh with magnitsky though and and the corruption issue uh, people have been exposing this, and there have been some very brave individuals who will write, uh, you know, who have written blogs about Russian government corruption. I mean, there are government officials that are just just stealing everything they can and living lavish lifestyles, and they're on salaries that are you know public servant salaries. So it, it shouldn't be a situation where you have all of this. Uh, it shouldn't be a situation where, where you have all these wealthy. Uh, government employees. I mean, Putin himself, I think, is estimated to be worth in, in the billions of dollars, which is like, what What business did Putin start? Oh, that's right. He's just He just runs Russia and is incredibly wealthy uh, as, a, as a result of it. Um, but I just don't really—I'm I, I, going to keep following this. I want to talk about this U- Ukraine story. Let me get into it a little bit now, and maybe I'll finish it on the other side here, because I was hoping to kind of wait and get into it. Uh, in a full-fledged fashion in the next hour, but we've got some time now. This is a Politico piece. Okay, so we've been hearing a lot about Russia and Trump and collusion, all this stuff. This was back in January of this year, so what, seven months ago-ish. Um, here's what was written by Politico then. Ukrainian efforts to sabotage Trump 
backfire. Kiev officials are scrambling to make amends with the president-elect after they quietly after quietly working to boost Clinton. Let's just let that let that sit there for a second. Wait, wait, hold on a minute. What, what do you mean a foreign government was quietly working to help Hillary Clinton? Well, I, I thought that was the worst thing ever. I thought that interference in our election was devaluing and destroying our most sacred institutions, that, that our whole democratic processes could be called into doubt because of a foreign government's intrusion into our election in some way. Just even intruding on the conversation, not actually even hacking and changing votes or anything. So I'm so, I'm so confused, everyone. What, what, what is this all about? Here's some of the detail. Quote, Donald Trump wasn't the only presidential candidate whose campaign was boosted by officials of a former Soviet bloc country. Ukrainian government officials tried to help Hillary Clinton and undermine Trump by publicly questioning his fitness for office. They also disseminated documents implicating a top Trump aide in corruption and suggested they were investigating the matter only to back away after the election. And they helped Clinton's allies research damaging information on Trump and his advisors, a Politico investigation found. A Ukrainian-American operative who was consulting for the Democratic National Committee met with top officials in the Ukrainian embassy in Washington in an effort to expose ties between Trump, top campaign aide Paul Manafort, and Russia, according to people with direct knowledge. The Ukrainian efforts had an impact in the race, helping to force Manafort's resignation and advancing the narrative that Trump's campaign was deeply connected to Ukraine's foe to the East Russia. But they were far less concerned or centrally directed than Russia's alleged hacking and dissemination of Democratic emails. So, based on this reporting, a foreign government, Ukraine, and a Democrat operative working for the DNC with deep ties to the DNC were working together to smear Trump people and to get bad info about Trump. Wait, 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 wait. What's going on? I'll tell you more. Stay with me. He's holding the line for America. Buck Sexton is back. So Ukraine is... Now back in the headlines because there was an effort to work with uh, some Ukrainian government officials and journalists by a DNC, Democratic National Committee operative, uh, to help Hillary and hurt Trump, which I'm just so surprised. Why is this okay? I I just want to know. Let me read to you from this political piece. Let's break this down, walk through this together. I will talk to you later this hour, by the way, about that piece on uh, feminism, or rather, a piece by a f- feminist writer who is afraid of her own sons because they're male. Is that's the short version of a much longer and more more troubling uh, piece than I can express right now. Uh, but I wanted to walk through this with you. And by the way, eight four four nine hundred two eight two five eight four four nine hundred buck. If you have some thoughts on the show, would love to hear from you. Um, any, anything that's on your mind. If you have decided you're going to check out some new awesome Team Buck gear at bucksexon.com slash store. Maybe you can just call in and be like, Buck, I've placed my order. The t-shirt looks amazing. I will be tweeting out selfies or posting them on Facebook. And I'm like, go for it. Okay. Uh, the hats are also very popular. We are working on mugs. Shameless plugs will end now. Um, 
quote from this piece, Politico, back in July of this year on, and by the way, the uh, when you type this into Google, Ukraine sabotage Trump backfire is what comes up in the URL address. That pretty much sums it up. Ukraine sabotage Trump backfire. But wait, I thought foreign interference in an election. And then you, you know what they're going to say, and they say it in this piece. So I just want to get to it right away. Oh, but it wasn't as serious. It wasn't as severe. It didn't do as much. Well, is, is, it, is it about the outcome? Because we're all now supposed to complain about a meeting where no valuable or, in, or important information was exchanged. So it was just the fact that there was this effort, right? But nothing happened. Well, if there was an effort from a DNC operative to work with the Ukrainian with people from the Ukrainian government, then isn't that just as unethical? And by the way, I don't think either is criminal, but and, and we all should be very uh, slow to think that you know asking questions or being willing to receive information is itself a, a criminal thing, only in very specific and limited circumstances. But people, of course, if they have an opportunity to criminalize their political opponents in this country now everyone jumps at it far too quickly particularly democrats so this political piece ukraine sabotage trump backfire in the url url when you type it into uh, into google here's what it says a daughter of ukrainian immigrants who maintained strong ties to the ukrainian american diaspora and the u.s embassy in ukraine uh alexandra chalupa a lawyer by training in 2014 was doing pro bono work for another client interested in the Ukrainian crisis and began researching Manafort's role in Yanukovych's rise, as well as his ties to the pro-Russian oligarchs who funded Yanukovych's political party. OK, so we're talking about Ukraine now, the political situation in Ukraine. You have this DNC operative Chalupa, which as an aside, I just had to ask my team here to make sure I'm not crazy. Um, a Chalupa is a... I wasn't sure about this. A chulpa is a fried tortilla that that usually has a spicy meat uh, filling, just as an aside. I, I was like, isn't there a chalupa a food? And they're like, yeah, chalupa is a food. But anyway, this is this woman's last name, chalupa. Um, uh, a sexton, for those of you who may or may not know, is the person who takes care of a church and, and actually sometimes is in charge of uh, digging the graves or taking care of the graves. So, you know, we have last, I have a last name that has a meaning too. Uh, but anyway, this woman, Alexandra Chalupa, is in doing her stuff in Ukraine. And here's what she tells Politico. Remember, this is before we knew what we know now about publicly about all the Russia collusion stuff. So they were willing to tell this and probably didn't see what the long-term consequences would be. In an interview this month, Chalupa told Politico she had developed a network of sources in Kiev and Washington, including, remember, Kiev's capital, Ukraine, including investigative journalists, government officials, and private intelligence operatives. While her consulting work at the DNC this past election cycle centered on mobilizing ethnic communities, including Ukrainian Americans, she said that when Trump's unlikely presidential campaign began surging in late 2015, she began focusing more on the research and expanded it to include Trump's ties to Russia as well. She occasionally shared her findings with officials from the DNC and Clinton's campaign. Okay, let's just, all right, class, let's review, shall we? DNC affiliated and paid person is running around developing Ukrainian sources both in the U.S. and in Ukraine, including government officials, 
in Ukraine. And she is trying to get bad info on or derogatory information, oppo research on Paul Manafort. Paul Manafort is the campaign chairman of the Trump presidential effort. So what am what am I missing? So so Veselnitskaya is like, hey, I've got oppo research on Hillary. Will you take a meeting with me? And campaign people sit down with her and and you know Trump is Trump is now a traitor and oh my gosh the country's been taken over by a, a a Russian a Russian agent and all this other stuff. But a DNC operative is running around Ukraine asking the Ukrainian government and doing all kinds of stuff, trying to get opposition information on Trump and Manafort and and that's just fine. Why is that just fine? Because it wasn't as effective as the as the Russian effort to. Uh, well, is, is this about principle and rule of law and the sanctity of our democratic institutions? Or is this just about, well, when you do it, it's bad, but when I do it, it's good? I don't know. You tell me. So she's sharing her information. And this uh, woman, Chalupa, shares it with Hillary's campaign directly. And she's uh, involved with a number of different journalists and, and uh, all kinds of folks. Oh, this also should... Um, Note that she shared concerns she had with Ukraine's ambassador to the U.S. and one of his top aides during a March meeting at the Ukrainian embassy. This is about Trump and his associate Paul Manafort, according to someone briefed from the meeting. And uh, Manafort was very much on the ambassador's radar, but he wasn't particularly concerned about the operative's ties to Trump since he didn't believe Trump stood much a chance of winning the GOP nomination, let alone the presidency. Um while the embassy declined that uh, declined that request, officials there became helpful in Ch- helpful in Chalupa's efforts. She said, explaining she traded information and leads with them. If I asked a question, they would provide uh, guidance, or if there was someone I needed to follow up with. Oh, okay. So also the Ukrainian embassy helps her out and provides her with information and sources. That's as official government as official government's going to get, right? When, when you're working with someone in the embassy, that's, that, that is the, the literal manifestation, the, the actual representatives of that government in that country. So this is, this is okay? Now, I understand it didn't, you know, she didn't get uh, Manafort's emails and, and WikiLeaks didn't release them. And, you know, that, that didn't happen. But is the problem just trying? Because I was hearing about attempted collusion earlier in the week, which I was saying, what does that even mean? But if if attempted collusion is a thing, isn't this thing in Ukraine that the Democrats were involved in, isn't that also attempted collusion? So they're either both bad or neither is bad. I actually would take the point of view, I should note, that, that probably both of them are not, you know— and, and politics really and I'm also somebody who really disagrees with a lot of campaign finance laws. And I, you know, I think politics, y- you want to stop pretending you can control what you can't control with a lot of this stuff. And if people are trying to get information, you know, they're going to get it one way or another. And yeah, I don't know. Um, I, I think it's I think politics is the Wild West, my friends. You know, it's it's an every man and woman for himself kind of situation. So uh, I, I don't understand why we're all supposed to think that politics is run by Boy Scouts now. Uh, it's not the quote. I mean, it's not the uh, reality now, and it's it certainly wasn't the reality in this whole exchange. Um, so anyway, this woman was working, doing oppo research, looking into all this, and you know, it's 
not something that the media is talking about this week, really. And I know that the way they try to shut down this discussion is to say that this Ukrainian Remember, Ukraine sabotage Trump backfire is what is in the URL of this piece on Politico. So th- those are the key those are the key words that Google pulls up for you. Ukraine sabotage Trump backfire. Uh, but we, we're supposed to believe that Russia collusion was this terrible thing. So what it really comes down to, I guess, is the Russia collusion is so terrible because maybe it actually did help Trump, whereas the, the Democrat Ukraine collusion is no big deal because it, it, di- it didn't work. It didn't work. <laughs> That's it. That's really the, but that's not an ethical difference, right? That's not a moral difference. That's just an efficacy difference. That's just that how effective was this, which is not how we should be judging this, right? So uh, I just, I find all of this very, uh, very intriguing, friends. Very intriguing indeed. Melon, California, iHeart app. What's up? How are you, Buck? I'm all right. Thanks for calling in. Yeah, well, thank you for, I, I just discovered you were on the line or on, on the phone now, because I hear you on our uh, station at, from 9 to midnight, and I can never get a, get you. But Yeah, iHeart app, man. Get me live every day. Just go to iHeart app and type in Buck Sexton with America Now. It's a party. Yeah, but you have to have a computer to do that. Or a smartphone. Yeah, I'm an old guy. I'm not into all that stuff. But I'm actually talking to you from a landline. Um, but anyway, um, I really appreciate your... Uh, discussions you're a young guy but you have a, a better discussion and a, and a better pace of speech and so that's enough of that for the compliments but thanks you know i really believe and if we read our constitution you know if you're uh, legal you can be an immigrant if you're illegal you're called an invader it's in article one section eight clause 15 if people don't want to read well we can't help that and then it's in article four section four that the uh, United States government shall protect every state in the Union from invasion. And in California here, they voted communist. They went for a total, well, we're on our way to total gun control here. And yet, Article 3, Section 1 of the California State Constitution says that we're part of the Union and the U.S. Constitution is the supreme law of the land, which I assume includes the Second Amendment. Do you have any um, comments about that? Comments about why the Supremacy Clause in the Constitution is violated when it comes to the Second Amendment? Well, I don't know what the Supremacy Clause is. I've never read that in there. But, I mean, the Second Amendment is part of our, uh, you know, we who fought for this country have been disarmed. Well, I mean, this is... uh, So I I thought we were talking borders. Um... But by the way, the, the, the Supremacy Clause, Article uh, Article 6, Clause 2, establishes the Constitution, federal laws made pursuant to it, and treaties made under its authority constitute the supreme law of the land. So the Supremacy Clause is just saying the, that the federal federal law overrides, this, uh, overrides the state law. It's a very simple uh, and straightforward application of it, but it doesn't. I'm sorry? Thank you. For, I said thank you for that. I'll look that up. Yeah, yeah. And read it. Um, so... It's just the Supremacy Clause, Supreme Law, the lands of federal law. So on the issue of uh, borders, the reason that we haven't had border enforcement is because we've had two political parties that pretend to care about it but don't really want to do it. Democrats don't want to do it really at all. Republicans only kind of sort of want to do it sometimes. But the uh, the donor class of the Republican Party is very favorable towards 
uh, a, a constant flow of cheap labor because it's helpful for businesses and big businesses, especially in some industries that write big checks. Big checks go to Republicans and go to lobbyists that get Republicans in D.C. to do certain things. So we, we've had decades of of lies about the border. I mean, even Reagan went for an amnesty that within a few years he realized was was a terrible idea because you got the amnesty without the enforcement that was promised. And the New York Times, believe it or not, at one point was an advocate of uh, border control and saying that the pressure on wages of workers in this country was uh, was deleterious. And, and so you shouldn't allow there to be uh, unchecked immigration from particularly the developing world because you're going to have all this pressure on wages. Now, the New York Times in the post-2000 era has completely changed its tune on that, as we know. Uh, but So that's on, on that issue. And on, on the Second Amendment— uh, the way that works is that there are different states, meaning, you know, why why doesn't the right to bear arms mean that you have the right to bear arms? You have states that just pass laws that pretend that the Constitution's not there, uh, or pretend rather the Second Amendment's not there. And yep. there's a legal, you know, there are legal processes that, that people have to go through to try and get that overturned. I mean, D.C. V. Heller made its way all the way up to the Supreme Court. Um, and there are people that just didn't want to accept that the right to bear arms means the right to bear arms. But uh, Mel, actually, I ha- I have to run into a break here, or so we're going to miss our uh, our uh, our spot. Uh, so I thank you for calling in. I try to give you that's a much longer, more interesting conversation than I can have right now. But interesting questions. Running into a break. Eight four four nine hundred buck. I'll be back in just a few. Stay with me. That NBC News uh, put out the story earlier today with this headline, former Soviet counterintelligence officer attended meeting with Donald Trump Jr. and Russian lawyer. There's some dispute over, uh, you know, who this guy is and, you know, what's an accurate description of him. The This additional person who was there, I think there was also a translator there that's now the eight people that were in the meeting. But, you know, I, I don't know why the Trump people... Keep telling, th- keep saying things that they're not accurate on this. I think it just makes it worse for them. I, I don't, I don't understand why. Why not just say that who was in the meeting and you know, nothing happened? And, and there are also reports. I don't know if they're confirmed yet that there were some documents that were exchanged in the meeting, but maybe there were nothing burger documents. I, I you know, I'm, I'm just going on what I can read here. I wasn't in the room. You know, I, I, I can't tell you definitively one way or another how this meeting went. But this whole thing is. It's weird, but not a big deal is kind of how I would describe it so far, which seems to be a common thing that can happen in life. Devin and Georgia on the iHeart app. What's up, Devin? Hey, Buck. Uh, hear me? Yeah, man, we can all hear you. Hey, I love the show, man, especially, uh, especially new one. Congratulations, even though it's been a while. Thank you very much. Uh, when are we going to get you to move to the territory up there in New York, man? Move out of hostile territory? I don't know. It's uh, I, I, I'm used to the fight, my friend. I'm used to walking around here in the freedom struggle. Um, one thing I wanted to say, it seems to me like the press is almost doing a, one of your previous shows was talking about how the Russians had a program where they would uh, take, like, hey, Subject A was in New York City at the same time as Subject B, and we can't account for where either one of them were for, like, three hours. So we can't say that they didn't get each other against something shady, but we can't say that it didn't happen. You know what I'm talking about? Well, you're saying that the press is running with theories that are not not disproven but not proven? Yes, where it's like, hey, well, we can't really say exactly what, not in this uh, case with uh, Trump Jr., but it just kind of seems like all the time 
every couple of minutes, they try to find something. Hey, this person met someone that was shady, so let's go ahead and see if we can run with this and see what we can get out of it for a couple of minutes. Oh yeah, well I think they run with stories and then and then they do analysis as a ver. They run with a story that can be thinly sourced and then they add analysis to it to go even further with the story and not having to provide the facts for, but it's quote analysis. News analysis is one of the most abused things you'll see from these major organ major news organizations because that's just where they tell you what they think without having to back it up really. Uh, and and the difference between news analysis and editorial is non-existent as far as I'm concerned. Uh, but that's what I got. Devin, anything else? Um, I had a movie quote for you. Let's see what you got. Okay. Uh, your son was an accident, but I, w- I wanted to kill you, but you took it too personally. Why can't you kill yourself or just let it go? Hmm. I got nothing. What is that? Face Off, man. Face Off. That's even a 90s movie. Face Off? Ah, yeah, John Travolta says that to Nicolas Cage. I remember now. Okay, okay. All right, you got me, Devin. But thank, thank you, man. Shields High, thank you very much for calling in. Uh, all right, we'll be taking some more calls. I'll take some more. We've got a lot of lines left. We'll take some calls after this uh, this break. And I want to tell you about this this piece on on feminism that is, it, it is mind-boggling. We'll talk about that coming up here. I mean, a woman who's uh, a writer, I suppose, of, of some note is frightened of her own sons because they've been raised in an America which is rape culture now uh it's it's just it's terrifying to read because I think that there are more women who have been their minds have been so uh overtaken with this feminist uh claptrap and and this really destructive thinking um we'll get into it I'll, I'll tell you what she says she says she's afraid of her sons because of rape culture it's it's nuts we'll be right back He's back with you now, because when it comes to the fight for truth, the buck never stops. Fred in Ohio on WWVA. Welcome to Freedom Hut, sir. Good evening. Good evening. Uh, my question has to do, has to do with um, the uh, uranium rights, 20% of uh, U.S. holdings that Hillary Clinton supposedly sold to the Russians. Yeah. Um, I'd like to know how she could do that. Well, uh, the, the way that this works, and it, it's pretty complicated, and if you want the the full and detailed explanation, you would want to go to Clinton Cash, the untold story of how and why foreign governments and businesses helped Bill and Hillary uh, Clinton rich, uh, helped make Bill and Hillary Clinton rich, uh, which was written by Peter Schweitzer. Uh-huh. So that that's he goes into this in some detail. He really was the one that raised this into the public consciousness. And my right. r- my memory of this is so there was a Uranium One uh, is a mining company, and there were some r- Russian uh, there were some Russian investors. They purchased a stake of it, and they needed to get. Um, uh, they needed to get permission from Clinton's State Department and f- in order to buy this stake of the 20% of America's uranium holdings. And there was a lot of money from people with connections to the Russians uh, who were funneling money to the Clinton Foundation at the time, right? That's that, that's kind of a, a short and maybe somewhat sloppy version of a much more detailed 
sequence of events, but that's basically right. what happened. Uh, what they say is that Hillary, I mean, the, the, the response, I'll give you the response you'll get from Democrats on this or the left, that one, the uranium doesn't actually like leave the country. It stays here or, you know, the U.S. maintains control of it. And two, uh, they'll say that Hillary was not a part of that decision process specifically. You know, do you believe that? I mean, you know, I, I, I leave that to you. But. It's unbelievable. And, and uh, the second question is, is um, OK, who's mining this uranium? I mean, are there are there Russians and, and where is this uranium? Is, is this uh, are these deposits in the United States or are they somewhere else? Yeah, they're here uh, and they're, yeah, they're not allowed to be exported from here. So it's yeah. U.S. subsidiaries of uranium one. Uh, are what we're talking about here. Uranium One is a South African mining company with U.S. subsidiaries, and some guy—I think it was a Canadian with ties to Russia. I mean, look, I can't—it's all in Clinton cash. But yes, uh, Clinton, the bottom line is Clinton Foundation was getting huge donations from people that you can draw a straight line from those donations uh, to an interest in the Uranium One situation, and people just say, "Well, no, that's not—that's not corruption because you know it's a charity." I mean, the Clintons, they're like evil geniuses. They set up a, an enormous global slush fund, which is a branding mechanism for them, funds their lifestyle, funds their private jet travel, pays for their meals, pays to put them up all over the world, allows them to set, have these huge conferences. And, and it's a br giant branding mechanism. It was really a, a, a second. It was kind of a, a second campaign for Hillary. Right. I mean, the whole Clinton Foundation was just a, an exercise in making her name more famous and creating international connections and a patronage network of people who knew that if they donated to her, she was likely to be the future president. So it was a, it was a huge money making machine. I mean, enormous. And if you're a U.S. citizen, by the way, you donated to the Clinton Foundation, you got a tax write off. You know what I mean? It's crazy. I mean, it's, the, the whole thing is just unbelievable. My second question is, is this um, uranium deal, um, can that be undone? I don't know. Uh, I would guess not. But, the, the, you know, now I, I will be honest and say we're getting beyond my area of uh, of expertise. Yeah. And I, I mean, I don't think the regulators could go back and, and, and uh, you know, give a, a negative on the – I don't think the State Department could say, psych, you know, we, we said you could do this, but you can't. But, you know, it's a crazy world we live in, my friend. I'm not totally sure. But thank you for calling in, Fred. Uh, Tim in Mississippi, WBUV. What's up, Tim? Thank you a lot. Uh, thanks a lot, Buck. Clinton Cash, by the way, great, great book. And actually, there's like a 55-minute uh, video uh, that they did on it that you probably still can find out on the Internet. But listen, I, I want to ask you a question. Of all of Trump's nominees that have managed to, to be confirmed, is there anybody that's particularly impressed you, and is there anybody that's particularly disappointed you? Uh, well, I mean, the easy answer to your question, the safe choice, the safe answer would be to say Mattis, I think, uh, just because he's so universally respected and and has uh, he has yet to say or do anything that has at least raised eyebrows for me, but that's not surprising because he's, he's a, a general's general from everything that we know. Um, I, I I can't say that you know it's it's tough to know in this White House who's making what decisions uh, thus far. I mean I, I the nothing there's nothing that Tillerson has done yet that I think has been uh, particularly exciting or noteworthy. But um, you know it's a it's a good question. So I mean Mattis is obviously great. It's a fantastic pick. I I I actually have faith in Tillerson. I, I like the idea of having a, a former. You know, CEO of one of the big, of I think the biggest company in the world, 
uh, as your Secretary of State. That makes sense to me. So, but no, why? Do you have somebody in mind, or are you, what, are you making a more general well, point about uh, how you're disappointed? You tell uh, me. Uh, yeah, well, uh, I like the names that you mentioned, and I think Gorsuch was was a great a great pick. Oh yeah, well Gorsuch, um, but I, I don't think of him I, as I, a I, uh, you know as like a member of the, the Trump administration, yeah, right? But go yeah, ahead. Yeah, that's that's true. Uh, good point. Good point. Um, I've got a lot of respect for Jeff Sessions, and when when he was appointed, I thought that is an absolutely great call to make because I've always thought he's been completely honorable. I'm not saying that he's not now, but I find it extremely interesting for, you know, the better part of a year now we've been chasing phantoms uh, with the Republicrats, you know, uh, agreement uh, in the Congress, and, and they haven't turned up one shred of evidence. And I cannot believe – James Comey in his 13-minute speech, you know, back last fall – he basically, you put some numbers and Roman numerals in there, and you got about a 40-count indictment against Hillary Clinton. And I hear nothing at all about anything being investigated on the left. So I got my questions this, because I don't believe that the Sessions is, is, is corrupt. But why in the world? Is it because you know, the, the, the media and the left are so pervasive now that somebody's thinking, well, if we did that, you know, the country would come apart. We'd wind up in flame. I mean, is, do you think that's a consideration? That like, why isn't Sessions fighting fire with fire against the Democrats on this stuff? I mean, I'm, I'm trying to get to the no, heart of your I, question. I, no, no, I, no, no. I don't think it's fighting fire, fire against fire with fire. They have no evidence at all uh, that Trump did anything. Right. No. Okay. Wrong. I get that. But so, what, and, what, do you, what would you want Sessions? That, what would you want Sessions to do? You I want like, Sessions yeah, to want, shut it down? I want them investigating. I want them investigating the Democrat Party and and the Hillary Clinton campaign. Yeah. I just, I mean, it's clearly. Well, I mean, to be fair to my question, I, I think that is, I mean, I think that's, you know, that's legal recourse used against that. That is kind of fighting fire with fire. I mean, we can just, we can agree to disagree on whether, you know, you think that that's uh, the way to describe it. But yeah, I think we may be seeing that, by the way. I think we um, uh, could be in a, a situation where, uh, and, and this is a theory that I, I think I've begun to expand upon on the show. No matter what happens, Trump can pardon anybody who's prosecuted from his administration. So now I'm not saying that's not a huge political liability and might, in fact, end up with Trump getting impeached. If that were to happen, I don't think that will happen. But Trump could pardon anybody. There's also uh, a couple of investigations, criminal investigation possibilities right now that might make the Democrats wish they hadn't tried to use the law as a tool of of, of political reciprocity or, or, or political revenge. And what's happening right now is that there's going to be, I think, an increased uh, pressure, which you're talking about, uh, Tim, the, the pressure to go back and look at the Hillary investigation, because that's a part of a lot of what we're already talking about here with the collusion and everything else. I mean, when you have Loretta Lynch saying that, you know, she's not that, that they shouldn't call it an investigation, it's a matter. And that's on the record now. I, I, mean, I think the special counsel should be looking into that, too. Yeah, because, yeah. you know, the, 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 now now. But that's why special counsels are so dangerous, by the way, because it just it just spirals off and, and there's no there's really no end in sight. There's no accountability. So it's concerning. Right. Well, I, I appreciate your points, but mine really goes kind of more back to, to this. You talk about the political ramifications and aspects and it's versus them and all that kind of stuff. But at the end of the day, I know I'm not a lawyer, but I know this. I know that keeping classified information in your home on an unsecured server 
is a violation of the law. Yeah, no question. It, 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 it's not Republican Democrat. Clearly, she broke the law. You do that, Buck, and then you know the rest of us will pay your bail. Yeah, I do it, and you'll never hear from me again. I know. It's just um, yeah, that's the, all true. The, the hypocrisy is. Yeah, it's very, it's very frustrating. Well, that's also why people that are saying, "Oh, you know, Trump should be Trump is a criminal and all this other stuff." They're like, "Really?" So Hillary's not a criminal, but Trump is. That's where we are now, media. Hillary's not a criminal. Trump is a criminal. Really, really. Yeah. All right. Thanks for calling in. Now we got to go to break. Tim, appreciate it. Shields high. Uh, quick break, and I'll talk to you about this feminist writer. We'll be right back. No limit to how crazy some progressive feminists can be. So just start with that. Uh, it's uh yeah. And there's a piece written by a, a writer named Jody Allard who wrote in the Washington Post after the Brock Turner case. Brock Turner was the Stanford swimmer who uh, was convicted of sexually assaulting a young woman who was very drunk uh, outside of a bar. And he went to prison for six months. And this was. This brought, you know, he's an athlete, white privilege, all of that came together in the case. People said, well, he should have gone to prison longer. And it was quite a quite a a topic of conversation and and big in the news cycle for a while. So she wrote a piece in The the Washington Post about uh, how her sons deny rape culture and how, you know, they're good. But she's writing about her own sons. Okay, there's a woman writing about her children who are 16 and 18, she says in the piece. And that was a little while ago. But they deny rape culture and will say things to her like, Mom, you think everything is about sexism and, and you think everything is about rape culture. And those kids are totally right based on what I'm reading about reading from this woman. So her teenage boys have decent heads on their shoulders because they're able to figure out that mom is nuts. I mean, she's she's crazy. I mean, she she is not uh, working with the normal understanding of society and what's going on in the world around her that that the rest of us are. Uh, she wrote this piece, this was just a, a day or two ago, uh, or no, sorry, last week, actually. I'm done pretending, Roll Reboot is the name of this, i never heard of it before. Her piece is, I'm done pretending men are safe, even my sons. That's the title of her piece. Let me read to you a little bit from this, because I think that this is, I, I don't think that she's the only one who holds these views. I mean, rape culture is is a a form of feminist hysteria. There's no such thing as rape culture. Rape is illegal in all 50 states. Men hate rapists. It's one of the most vile and and, and evil crimes in society, really second only to murder. So, you know, what rape culture? I mean, there are rapists the way that there are murderers. There are bad people, but a rape culture. What is rape culture? Uh, And... Well, let me read you what she thinks it is. I have two sons. They are strong and compassionate. They are good boys, but they are not safe boys. I'm starting to believe there's no such thing. I wrote an essay in the Washington Post last year during the height of the Brock Turner case about my sons and rape culture. I didn't think it would be controversial when I wrote it. I was sure most parents grappled with raising sons in the midst of rape culture. The struggle I wrote about was universal, I thought, but I was wrong. My essay went semi-viral, and for the first time, my sons encountered my words about them on their friends' phones, their teachers' computers, and even overheard them discussed by strangers on a crowded metro bus. Um, One of my sons was hurt by my words, uh, even though he never told me so. He doesn't understand why I lumped him and his brother together in my essay. Uh... 
I teetered frequently between supporting my son and educating him. Is it my job as his mother to ensure he feels safe emotionally no matter what violence he spews? Uh, as a single mother, I sometimes wonder whether the real problem is that my sons have no role models for the type of men I hope they become. But when I look around at the men I know, I'm not sure a male partner would fit that would fill that hole. Where are these men who are enlightened but not arrogant, who are feminists without self-congratulations? Uh, and she goes into like her own dating stuff or whatever, and then she talks more about and how her dating, you know, frustrations, and then she talks more about her sons. My sons won't rape unconscious women behind a dumpster, and neither will most of the progressive men I know. Can we just stop right there? She, she thinks that it's only the progressive men. This woman has been published in the Washington Post. She's apparently a writer. This is what she does. The, so, so the progressive men she'll trust to not rape a woman behind a dumpster. That's quite a, uh, a, a modifier to throw into, that, throw into that sentence. Not even just most of the men I know. Most of the progressive men I know. Because, you know, the conservatives are all, uh, you know, dumpest rapesters. Uh, or dumpster rapists. You know what I mean? Uh, sorry, I got my words confused there. Um, but what all these men uh, share in common, even my sons, is a relentless questioning and disbelief of the female experience. I do not want to prove my pain or provide enough evidence to convince anyone that my trauma is merited. I'm through wasting my time on people who are more interested in ideas than feelings, and I'm through pretending these people, these men, are safe. So if they're not safe, then that, that, this is a quote from, that was a quote from her piece, okay? If they're not safe, then they're unsafe. This woman, this feminist writer who has been published in the Washington Post editorial page, and I'm sure has some kind of a following online, is suggesting that all men are basically, wait, are, are just rapists in waiting. That that's what men are. They're rapists in waiting. And that rape culture has overtaken America and that I, I can't imagine going through day-to-day -day life actually believing that this is the society and this is the country that one lives in. But if you see the way that campus tribunals are set up for sexual assault cases, if you spend time at a, you know, welcome to campus 101 session, I mean, as, as I did and, and was actually part of some of the instruction at some of those things on my own campus, uh, you'll see that this is very, this is commonplace now, that, that men are all just teetering on the brink of sexual criminality and that it's a part of the female experience. I mean, this is how you get statistics like 20% of, and people will say this, that 20% of women on college campuses report having been sexually assaulted. That's just, a, that's not a, not an accurate statistic. It's just not true. Uh, that, that survey included unwanted glances and, and unwanted touching. I mean, so a guy who grabs a girl's arm and, you know, wants to kiss her and she pulls away and that's the end of it. That that's considered a sexual assault for the purposes of that survey. I mean, that's just nonsense, right? That's, I mean, the guy's a jerk and you shouldn't grab people, but that's not a that, that's not rape. Uh, so, but this this mentality has become widespread and it was really given a lot of credibility by the Obama administration with the way that they were involving at the federal level the government in how campuses deal with sexual assault accusations. They they forced under Title IX. Law, they forced colleges to start setting up these tribunals where the accused have no rights. And now Betsy DeVos is finally maybe going to challenge this and change this under the Trump administration. But it needs to happen because lives are being ruined because of this. It's a it's a feminist hysteria. The whole notion of rape culture is a falsehood. 
And uh, this woman, is that she's afraid that her own sons have been tainted by rape culture and, quote, she does not feel safe. She doesn't feel safe with them and that they are not safe and that no men are safe. Uh, this is, uh, unfortunately, a form of delusion, a form of lunacy. But as long as you throw enough fancy words around it and say it's about trauma and victimhood and the feminist experience, no one's supposed to challenge you. Uh, well, people like me don't really care what feminist loony writers think, so I will challenge it. This article is crazy, and I hope her sons are okay. The Freedom Hut rocks online, too. You can hang out with Team Buck anytime. Plus, get Buck's latest news and analysis. Go to BuckSexton.com. That's BuckSexton.com. Are you not entertained? The Buck is back. Welcome back, team. Many of you may have seen the movie Thomas Crown Affair with Pierce Brosnan about a very high-end and fancy art thief. Well, you know, art thievery is a real thing, and in fact, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of dollars are at stake. There was a recent story on Fox News about $580 million of stolen art from a Boston museum and how it may be hidden somewhere in Ireland. Well, we're joined by somebody who's a real expert in this area to tell us about art thievery, art sleuthing, art tracking down, all this stuff. Bob Whitman, he's a retired FBI agent and art crimes expert who's recovered more than $225 million worth of stolen art and property over his 20-year career at the FBI. Bob, thank you for joining us. Hey, Bob, it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, by the way, Bob is also the author of the New York Times bestseller, Priceless, How I Went Undercover to Rescue the World's Stolen Treasures, and also the international bestseller, The Devil's Diary, Alfred Rosenberg, and The Stolen Secrets of the Third Reich. Well, can we start, Bob, with this story about the $580 million of art that's uh, allegedly, possibly, maybe in Ireland and tied to some IRA folks? Can you give us both the backstory and also your take on this story? Sure, sure. But back in 1990, uh, two individuals went into the uh, Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum in Boston on St. Patrick's Day night. They were dressed as Boston police officers, and they basically talked the two young guards into letting them in, which was against the rules. But they uh, they tricked them into letting them in. At which point, of course, they weren't they weren't police officers; they were thieves. They uh, they tied up the two young men, and for the next hour and some odd minutes, went throughout the museum and stole 13 objects of art. Uh, the total value at that time in 1990 was $300 million. Today, the value of that artwork, which is still missing, is $580 million, as you said. That makes that specific property crime the largest single property crime in U.S. history. Now, there's been bigger frauds made off these types of frauds, but not single property crimes. So when we look at this, it's amazing to know that art theft is the single largest property crime in U.S. history. Today, those paintings have never been recovered. One of them is a Vermeer, one of only 34 known in the world. It's called The Concert. And uh, a second that was stolen was a uh, Rembrandt seascape. It's the only seascape in the world that Rembrandt ever did. So it's called The Storm Over the Sea of Galilee. And uh, this year, the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum has offered a $10 million reward for the recovery of all the artworks. Uh, up up till today, up till this year, it was five million. But for the for the from now till the end of this year, they've doubled that to ten million. In the event uh, any of your listeners have any idea where they're at, tell them to give us a call. <laughs> what what do you make of this story that was on Fox News just earlier in the week about how it might be this this artwork stolen from Boston Museum might be somewhere in Ireland, and there's some IRA Irish Republican Army connection to it. Yeah, well, you know, the thing is this, um, because these artworks have been gone for so long, 27 years, really, we don't really know where they're at. Um, any speculation 
It's just that. It's speculation. Uh, and, and what I do is, uh, because I've been involved, I actually was an FBI agent in 1988 when this thing happened, two years after I became an agent. And I've been involved in this case and known about this case for my entire career, 27 years. And so, uh, you know, we've looked at many, many different leads all over the world. We followed leads, I know, in Japan. We followed leads in South America. Um, and most of them were fruit were not fruitful. Um, in fact, though, the last year I was an FBI agent in 2008, I was actually chasing two of the paintings in the south of France, um, and I was working with the what they call the OCBC, which is the uh, French art dub team in Paris, to try to recover two of those pieces undercover. So, you know, the fact that someone at this point says that the IRA, you know, that that kind kind of has played itself out, because you know Boston's known as an Irish uh, area. Uh, there was a lot of speculation that the IRA could have been involved, and maybe so back in 1990, but today, 27 years later, I don't think so. We're speaking to Bob Whitman. He's a retired FBI agent and uh, art crimes expert. He's also the author of the New York Times bestseller, Priceless, How I Went Undercover to Rescue the World's Stolen Treasures. How does it uh, how does it work, uh, Bob, when someone steals a 20 or $30 million painting, what, where do they then try to sell it? How does that process go, go and, and work? That really is a good question. I'll tell you, throughout my career, what I've seen is that these criminals are good thieves, but they're terrible businessmen. <laughs> so they know how to go out and commit a crime, but they don't realize that once you steal these objects, really there's no market for them. You know, if you go out and, and steal cars, you can cut those cars up, and you can sell the parts for more than what the car is actually worth. And that happens with a lot of different types of uh, stolen property. But with artwork, it's, it's unique, and therefore it's well-known. It's got to be in good condition. You can't, quote, cut it up. And thirdly, once it goes out to the market, once it comes out to the market, that's when the police get a, get a lead on it and recover it. So I, I did many uh, undercover operations around my career around the world, 20 different countries, where we were actually going as a buyer for stolen, stolen high-value high, uh, asset paintings. And that's what happens to them. So the real theft, I mean, the real art in an art theft is not the stealing, it's the selling. It's getting away with selling it and monetizing that stolen property. I, I would guess that there are countries with uh, less scrupulous governments and very wealthy and well-connected individuals, maybe, who figure, uh, you know, we don't, we, I don't really care if, or, or if people know or, or people will never know because the police all do my bidding. And so that's maybe where... You can get this. I mean, if someone stole the kind of paintings we're talking about here from this Boston Art Museum theft, you said it's worth $580 million. Some of these are worth individual paintings worth tens of millions. As you said, these are artists that everybody from art history class uh, remembers. So uh, where, where could you possibly display it? I mean, what's the purpose of having a $30 million painting if you're not allowed to have it is, is what I'm trying to get at. Well, you know, that's, that's, that's the question. I agree with you. I mean, from the standpoint of monetizing this type of artwork, it doesn't work out. Now, what we have seen, not in the United States, but in other countries, in some countries in Europe and in Eastern Europe, sometimes the paintings are used as get-out-of-jail-free cards. What, what these, uh, you know, these groups of uh, criminal enterprises will do is they'll steal these paintings and they'll have them. And they'll try to monetize them, but if they can't, they'll just maintain them. And at some point when they get caught for something else, which could be an armed robbery, it could be you know drug deals, it could be armed weapons and, and selling weapons and guns and that type of thing, when they get caught for something else, they turn around and try to make a deal with the prosecutors in those countries to, to produce these artworks to get lessened sentences. So it's like they're holding Mona Lisa hostage in the basement. It's, yeah, 
they can, they, I've seen them try to do that. Um, like I said, it doesn't work in the United States because that's obstruction of justice, and, and the prosecutors can't make those kind of deals. But in places like Eastern Europe, you know, there, there are different uh, laws, different systems, and they can make these kind of deals. It's, it's an amazing thing when it comes to property crime. Just to give you an example, in, in Japan, if you buy a piece of stolen property, if you maintain that for two years, if you have it for two years, you actually, you actually get good title. Whereas, say, in Britain, Britain or the United States, because of our, our systems, you can never get good title to stolen property. It, it doesn't pass. So it's always stolen. And uh, tell me about your, your international bestseller, The Devil's Diary, Alfred Rosenberg and the Stolen Secrets of the Third Reich. just came out in 2016. Right, right. Well, the first book, Priceless, was a memoir of my career, my, my 20 years at the FBI and the recovery of all those artworks. Uh, I started a company in 2008 called Robert Whitman Incorporated, and what we do is we do these types of investigations. In fact, I still am following a few leads right now on the on the Gardner paintings, and um, that's why I'm telling you I don't think they're in Ireland. I think they're somewhere else. But anyway, <laughs> I can't I can't divulge that. And that's another thing about that story, which is strange, Buck, is that you know if if an investigator is getting close to getting paintings, the last thing you're going to do is is put that out in the press until after you've gotten the paintings. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. To tip off these people is not a good idea. So sometimes, you know, people will make claims and whatnot, and the idea is to try to get publicity. But as far as the uh, Devil's Diary was concerned, we recovered that in 2013. That's actually the uh, the handwritten 400-page diary of Alfred Rosenberg, who was the chief philosopher and civil scientist for Adolf Hitler. And in fact, uh, many people believe that uh, Adolf Hitler was turned into the Hitler that we know by Alfred Rosenberg and his theories. Uh, he was the philosopher for the Nazi parties in the 1920s and actually proselytized Hitler and brought him under his wing and gave him the ideas that, that we now know were uh, part of the Nazi party. So we recovered that diary. It was stolen during the uh, Second World War, right at the end of the Second World War, at the uh, Nuremberg trials by one of the federal prosecutors who was there. And uh, was missing from 1947 till 2013 when we were able to recover it. And the book chronicles the investigation, the recovery, and what's actually in the diary. And that's what's really important because, you know, we're talking about firsthand, you know, information from a primary source of the Second World War, a guy at the highest levels of the Third Reich, and his own private thoughts that he wrote for, for over 10 years in 400 pages. How much is that diary worth, by the way? Well, you know, it's priceless. Uh, and the reason for that is because the information within the diary is what's what's so priceless. I mean, you know, that, that's why it was so important to get it back. Actually, we did it for the U.S. Holocaust Museum, and they have it now. And, and it was so important to see what Rosenberg was saying because he talks about his actual meetings with Hitler and lunches with Hitler and tells about what was talked about at those meetings and lunches. So you have a primary source document for what was going on and how Hitler decided to do what he did. I'm going to ask you, Bob, for one second to just be a, your, your own art critic here. Of all the pieces that you uh, recovered, which was either the most beautiful, the most valuable, or both? Well, was, uh, I, you know, <laughs> those, are, those are tough questions. The most valuable piece I ever recovered was an uh, original, uh, not even a copy, it was an original handwritten uh, edition of the Bill of Rights. Uh, oh, so wow. Yeah, sent to the state of North Carolina in 1789 by George Washington. It was sent for ratification. Uh, the state house kept it in Raleigh. Uh, it was signed by John Adams. And it was stolen, believe it or not, in 1865 by a Union trooper who was coming back with Sherman's troops from Atlanta. 
Well, they stopped in Raleigh, took over the state capitol, and basically that's how they took over North Carolina. One of the troopers went into the state house and stole the Bill of Rights and took it back to Indiana with them. And it was missing all the way up till 2003 when we recovered it in an undercover operation when they were trying to sell it to the uh, National Constitution Center in Philadelphia. So, that Bob, was, Bob Whitman, it can be said, everybody uh, rescued the Bill of Rights. So there you go. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Bob, you don't know what an FBI agent. I, I swore, you know, an allegiance to the Constitution, but I never knew I actually had it in my hand. There you go. Very cool. Bob Whitman, everybody, check out his books, uh, Priceless, How I Went Undercover to Rescue the World's Stolen Treasures and The Devil's Diary, Alfred Rosenberg and the Stolen Secrets of the Third Reich, available on Amazon or fine bookstores everywhere. Bob, great to talk to you, man. Thank you so much and have a good weekend. Thanks, Bob. Good luck to you, and I appreciate the uh, uh, opportunity to speak. Absolutely. All right, team. Um, you know, it's uh, it's Bastille Day, so I'm going to give you a little Bastille Day history. Also going to talk to you about a little funny French national anthem uh, mess up that happened recently and much more. Stay with me. All right, everybody. He's fired up about the week. Let's do Fired Up with Jimmy Fallon. New York City cab driver turned professional stand-up comic and radio host of Off the Meter with Jimmy Fallon. Jimmy, good to have you, sir. How you living, man? I'm out here in Colorado this week. I'm on the road, Buck. Oh. And, uh, you know, it's good living out here. I'm, I'm, I'm fired up. Nobody around me is, though. It, it, I'm just, uh, do you ever go to a comedy club and you're like, you know, guys, uh, you know, they do that thing where they're they say, hey, it's beautiful. We love your great audience. You know, Albuquerque. <laughs> do you ever go in somewhere and you're like, hey, what what's up, um, Saint Paul? Get like you guys are kind of boring. <laughs> Does that never, ever happen or no? Let's never let's never do this again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's uh, that does go on. That does go on. But no, out here, where I'm at right now, you know, people. You know, I'm not a weed guy. You're not a weed guy. It's a weird place to open a conversation. But out here in Colorado, everything moves so slow. Nobody thought about that when they were like, "Yeah, we'll legalize weed. People will enjoy it. It'll be great. We'll get tourism." But I've basically my drive from Denver to Glenwood Springs, which should take an hour, has taken four because everybody's pulling over to hatch a conspiracy theory every three miles. It's crazy town. Does everyone does everyone in uh, in Colorado these days, weed or no weed, think that uh, President Trump is whispering into his sleeve in Russian or something? (laughs) Yeah, I know everybody at CNN does like, oh, my God, they're 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 practically at this point blaming him for the National League losing the All-Star game. Uh, it's this week more than any week, man, was really, I thought, the ultimate call to sobriety from the standpoint of both sides, really both sides, went into this extremist position where it was like the Democrats felt like, all right, well, this, this was the absolute concrete proof that Trump's a Russian and, you know, we're all doomed. And then on the right, you know, the attempt to say that this was nothing at all I, I also thought was a little bit of a stretch, you know. Um, Donald Trump Jr.'s line, you know, when he was on Hannity the other night, when he said, I, I can't help what people send me, it really is the funniest thing in the world. You know, can you imagine my wife comes home, I'm hanging out with a girl, and I'm like, hey, hey, my buddy sent me this. It's, I can't help what people send I can't help <laughs> yeah. what people send me, Jenny. I, you know, I got no idea here. Well, see, you know, I, I think um, at this point there's, there's maybe some wisdom to, to Donald Trump uh, senior just or or junior just leaning into it and show up you know wearing like a, an Adidas tracksuit and a big gold chain and just be like whoa, whoa, whoa. you know hey, you know I've got a lot of friends back in Moscow you know I mean just just go with it 
would you would you lend him one of your Adidas tracksuits? Is that really an option we're talking about here? I mean, I try not to share them because mine are obviously uh, <laughs> specifically fitted for for me. But there's, that's not a bad idea there. But I just wonder when people get bored of it, Jimmy. I mean, that's really. I see all this stuff going on on CNN, and I know they're playing to their constituency, which I think is getting yeah. smaller and smaller now. Because if you're going to watch the full-on left-wing propaganda machinery at work, why not just watch MSNBC? Yeah. But, you know, I, I see this stuff going on, and what I think to myself is, don't people get sick of hearing about this? But I guess not, because if you think that Trump is a traitor and he's working for Russia, this anything that, that confirms that in your mind gets you excited, right? That's the way this breaks yeah. down. We, yeah, that's that's the big thing. But for them, what I'm finding to be really funny, and we were talking about this on Kennedy the other night, is that they finally have something that looks like it could be even just remotely substantive. I don't think it is. But the problem is they've had so many false starts on this story that they finally got to a point where it was something of substance that might actually bolster their case or at least further the call for an investigation – but everyone's tuned them out on this because they've just, you know what I mean? They've just heard it too much at this point. It's almost like if you're running a Russian conspiracy theory today, it's like challenging someone to do the ice bucket challenge like two years later. Like they're like, yeah, I get it. That was a thing, but uh, we're not really doing that. You know what I mean? Nobody's emotionally invested anymore. And uh, I found that part to be funny because this kind of is their Super Bowl. You know, and uh, they're not really getting the Super Bowl response from America because the average person and this is what everybody forgets. The average voter, the average person, they want to see things get done. They want to see legislation. They want to see, you know, they want to see them do something in healthcare, obviously tax reform. They don't really care about relitigating the election, you know, at this point. And that's where I think, you know, I hate using the term jump the shark, you know, but maybe they taught the shark to speak Russian. Maybe we'll change the cliche or something like that. Can you work with me in your tracksuit, Buck Sexton? I'm in a pickle here. <laughs> yeah, I'm just letting you do your thing, man. I don't want to get in the way of the genius. Uh, but nonetheless, I, I, I think that one, one aspect of this that might be really interesting is let's say that there is a criminal prosecution of somebody tied to Trump and Trump, uh, tr Trump decides to pardon that person which he can completely do by the way that, that's what i think one of the interesting things about all this is that and by the way and i think he absolutely first of all if it involves a family member he 100 percent will doesn't matter what the media says and he can yep. they can't stop him he yep. has the absolute power of pardon so any criminal investigation or, or any criminal prosecution rather that comes out of the special counsel's investigation can yep. be nullified so, so no one's going to prison is what I, you know unless no. trump lets somebody get thrown under the bus he doesn't really care about no one's going to prison i think we could see a reality where they push charges against somebody, and we've only got a minute here, Jimmy, but I wanted your response yep. to this, where he uh, pardons somebody and still wins re-election. And then I think Democrats completely lose their minds. Yeah, that's when the meltdown starts. Well, that's the part of this, I think, that's lost on everybody, is Trump is a, is a dad, and he's really turned the presidency into a, a convenience in that he's eliminated all of his Christmas shopping and birthday shopping by handing out security clearances and presidential pardons and Jared and Ivanka got an anniversary present by both getting offices in the White House. It's he's just a dad. I think that's what's lost in all of this. Everybody thinks he's like a Russian, you know, mole trying to overthrow the country. I actually think he's part lazy dad, and he really enjoys he he enjoys the skirmish more than anybody I've ever seen. You know, you talk about a guy who has a nose for the ball. He's having a great time, man. Nobody's having more fun than him, 
except maybe me when I come on the Buck Sexton show. Is that fair? There we go, man. Per- perfect. Jimmy Fallon, everybody. Check out the Jimmy Fallon show, Off the Meter with Jimmy Fallon. And also, he's got a special on Netflix. Sir, have fun in Colorado. Enjoy it responsibly. The state. <laughs> Enjoy Buck. the state responsibly. Thank you, sir. Good, good to yeah, have man. you on. Welcome, All right. Team, we're going to hit a break. We'll be uh, right back. From their relationship. And before you answer that, let's just listen into the French national anthem for just a moment. Hmm? French national anthem. Wait a second. Wait a sec. Wait for it. Marty. Oh, oh. The U.S. American National Anthem, I should say. Oh, yeah, there we go. Uh, CNN reporter Poppy Harlow, who used to occasionally have me on uh, TV so she could specifically say things like conservative political commentator. And when I would ask her, why is the Democrat just called a political commentator? Uh, She would look at me like, Uh, but yeah, I love that. (laughs) Yeah, Leave it to CNN to have an anchor who's like, now the French national anthem. Now I know what they would say, right? I understand what the response here would be. Buck, come on, don't be unfair. She was just not paying attention for a second. But no, no, no. It went on for it went on for a few beats there, and I'm sure she had the feed in her ear, in her earpiece. I know because I've been in these situations, uh, and I just yeah, look. I I'm under, I understand that she can tell the difference probably, but it is funny. That uh, we, we went on there for a few minutes. Now let's listen to the French national anthem. Oh, say can you see? Uh, yeah, that's not the French national anthem, is it? Oh, man. Yeah, good times. Good times over at CNN. Been, been a rough month over there. I'm not going to lie. It's been, it's been some tough stuff for the CNN of late. And... Uh, I, like, I think overall it, it's a good thing. I mean, I might try to watch a little bit of the uh, Sunday talk shows this weekend just because I want to get a sense of what the narrative will be for the days ahead about the Russia-Trump stuff. And they set they, they really do set up what the rest of the stories will be. Uh, I have to say that uh, CNN, from my discussions recently with friends who still work there, is has taken a pretty dramatic change it has it has shifted and now it's a place where to be a uh, in any way pro trump voice is to be part is to be a problem actually i mean y- you are uh, rowing against the rest of the boat you you're going in the wrong direction nobody wants any of that but uh, i just thought that was pretty that, that was a fun that was a fun moment there uh yeah that was cnn anchor poppy harlow who you know, there there are some people who, you know, I'm like, hmm, what exactly is the expertise or the draw here? And I just I just don't get it. Did did her show a lot, but not because she particularly was fond of me. I just they needed a conservative on the weekends who would come in in person and uh, deal with being interrupted and being dismissed and, and unfair treatment. So I have to say it's it's a very the same way that going to a small liberal arts college where everybody was a Democrat, I think made me a much better conservative. Working as a conservative for a couple of years at CNN has made me much better at my job now because I I know all their dirty tricks. I know all the ambush techniques. I know what you can expect over there and how they play the game. 
And so also when you have these, oh, oh, these all these puffed up chests with the, oh, we're, we're a bunch of journalists. How, how dare you think that we have some agenda here? I'm like, guys, please. I've, I've sat in, I've heard the meetings. I've, I've seen the talking points. I've been in the green rooms. I've been on air. I've known and befriended producers who tell me everything that's going on behind the scenes. And that place is every bit as left-wing as MSNBC. Every bit. Every bit. Uh, and some of them can't tell the difference between the French and the American National Anthem, at least for a few, a few seconds. It's pretty funny. Uh, but Bastille Day, Bastille Day is today. We're going to talk about that in just a minute. I'll give you the history of Bastille Day before we close out the show. Stay with me. Hello. Bienvenue, l'équipe de Buck. Welcome, Team Buck. Great to have you here. It is a Bastille Day today in France. It is their uh, biggest national holiday. Uh, before I get into a bit of the history of it, mais oui, bien sûr, l'histoire du Bastille. Uh, before I get into Bastille Day's history, uh, let's first be very clear that it is, in fact, not called Bastille Day in France, or Bastille, if you want to be a little more Frenchy. It is called La Fête Nationale Française, or Fête Nat, or La Fête du uh, 14 Juillet. La Fête du 14 Juillet, it's the uh, 14th of July holiday, or just La 14. I kind of messed that one up. La 14. There we go, a little better. So. Here's what happened. Uh, let's let's take this all the way back. Let's party like it's 1789, July 14th, 1789. There's this big, ugly medieval fortress actually built centuries before in the middle of Paris called the Bastille, and you've got uh, Louis the 16th who's hanging out up at Versailles, and there's been some problems. You know, Versailles is outside of Paris. Uh, there have been some problems recently with uh, the peasants. There are all kinds of concerns and and uh, anger over, well, primarily ta- taxation. There's a lot. I mean, I can't do a history of the French Revolution in like three minutes here. But the clergy and the nobility were free of taxes. And, uh, of course, the French had just helped the Americans at considerable expense. Thanks, guys. Oh, not a problem. Happy to help you defeat the, the English. Anything to smack the English in the face. Uh, so they helped us out. You know, we have that debt to uh, General Lafayette. Uh, but they spent a lot of money, and they were bankrupt, effectively. And the uh, French people were being heavily taxed. And so there's a lot of discontent, you could say, on the streets. And so uh, Louis XVI is up at Versailles. He's hunting. He is uh, hanging out. And uh, this is when a group got together, and they decided that they would uh, take matters into their own hands because they had heard that Louis was preparing some kind of a military expedition or gathering military forces and may uh, seize and punish people. Also, they had dismissed a French minister of finance. Louis had dismissed a French minister of finance, Jacques Necker, who was actually not, not French. I believe he was Swiss. And he was very popular with the people, and so that was another reason for what was effectively a, a mob to take matters into their own hands. Uh, this is, oh, by the way, you know, you've got Louis the Sixteenth at the time. His his wife is Marie Antoinette. She never actually said, "Let them eat cake." By the way, uh, so that's an important thing, I believe, to. 
keep in mind about all of this, that there's some stories that come out of the French Revolution that everyone still believes. It's not really how it went. So the uh, some peasants in France and some tradesmen, actually, some merchants and people who are uh, craftsmen of different sorts, they gather together and they go to a place called uh, Les Invalides, uh, the Invalids, which is, was a military retirement home and hospital for the wounded. And they just stormed it and grabbed thousands of muskets. But you see, with muskets, you also need gunpowder. You need bullets. And so they didn't have what they needed. And they then decided to go and uh, get the rest of this so that they could actually engage French soldiers. And by the way, at the time, a lot of Louis' uh, military were, were um, uh, mercenaries. They were German and Swiss mercenaries. And so that also, of course, raised the ire of the people on the streets. And this mob that had gathered, and you know, who knows uh, its, its exact origins, gathered together. It included, by the way, a group called uh, Les Poissards, uh, like poisson is fish, and some of you will remember from The Little Mermaid, les poissons, les poissons, he, 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 ha, ha, ha. Uh, les poissards were the female fishmongers, uh, and they were later on, after the uh, Bastille Day, it's really the Bastille Day massacre, everybody, but I'll get there. Uh, they were run around Versailles uh, chopping off heads with the long knives that they had previously been, uh, previously been using with great skill to gut and scale fish. Uh, and they were running around, they reportedly were running around screaming, saying that they wanted the actual head of Marie Antoinette. And later on, that would happen, of course, at, uh, well, with La Guillotine or the guillotine, if you want to Americanize it. So, uh, yeah, lovely people, Les Poissard. Uh, so they were supposedly getting ready for this expected crackdown. That's why they seized the muskets. This mob in Paris, you got Louis out at Versailles, this mob in Paris on 14th of July, 1789, Le 14 juillet en français. And they are uh, running around, and they decide, you know, we need to get gunpowder. You know what would be a great target for us? This giant hated prison uh, known as the Bastille uh, or Bastille, which which was known to have uh, gunpowder and, and shot, and that's what they needed. And it was also uh, reputed that there were political prisoners kept there, and that there were these letters, uh, these letters uh, lettres de cachet, that the king could just put your name essentially in a sealed envelope, give it to his people, and you would be imprisoned. And it was thought that some of those Political prisoners were kept at the Bastille. Marquis de Sade, by the way, who was a well-known French uh, literary pornographer, I guess we could say, uh, was known to have stayed at La Bastille, um, or he had been there. Where is it? Le Bastille. Pardon me. I'll get my masculine and feminine uh, gender uh, articles messed up in French a lot. It's been a while. And the fact that there even are masculine and, and feminine genders for French words it just feels like a huge microaggression, guys. I mean, I'm literally shaking RN right now. So uh, there are thousands of uh, pounds of gunpowder kept at the Bastille, and they want to get it. So there's initial—and, of course, there's all these rumors about how they're ca they keep all these prisoners there, and there's terrible torture that goes on. So the Bastille, which is this big fortress, 90-foot-high walls, stone— it, it's a medieval fortress. I mean, it's an old-school castle— is thought to be this uh, evil manifestation of Louis' state. And BT-dubs, by the way, they've also got 
gunpowder and shot there. So this mob decides that's where they're going to go. They try to breach the walls initially, and they are repulsed, and it's kind of a haphazard mess of an effort to try and get in there. And the uh, French bureaucrat in charge at the Bastille de Lunay is trying to figure out a way to get out of this whole situation uh, because the French crowd, the mob at uh, the Bastille, goes and gets some help from French army regulars who had deserted. You know, I guess a lot of people were just hanging out on the streets, word of mouth. They knew where different folks were hanging out. And those French regulars, well, they bring a cannon to bear. They, they bring artillery. And now, all of a sudden, the castle's getting hit with artillery. So it, it's not such a joke anymore uh, because they have a real means to batter down the defenses. And uh, de Lunay, who's this French bureaucrat, he, he's like, all right, I'm, I'm toast. I'm done. He waves the white flag. And he goes out there and he tells this mob, you either uh, back off or I'll blow the gunpowder storage and it'll like destroy everyone around us. And basically, I'll bring the whole place down. And the mob says there will be no negotiation at all and that they're just going to storm the palace. So they do. And they manage to breach the walls, get inside and dr- they, they grab Dulunay. He gets dragged out into the street and is beaten severely, stabbed. At one point, he says, uh, just let me die. And then the, they go, okay, totes. And, and they kill him, and they cut off his head and put it on a pike. And then they go, dra- and then they go march around in the streets with this uh, French bureaucrat's severed head on top of a, a spear, essentially. And they, um, by the way, the very nasty uh, procedure of heads on spikes would be continued. In fact, another... A person grabbed inside or in the vicinity of the Bastille, uh, thought to be a bureaucrat with some association with the state, was also beheaded and and head on a spike. Uh, There had been all these stories about how the Bastille was full of uh, these political prisoners. In fact, Louis' uh, twin brother, and this gave this from the legend of the man in the iron mask, was supposed to have been kept in the Bastille. It turns out there were only seven prisoners in there. Uh, a couple of uh, a couple that were considered to be lunatics, um, one that was in there for incest, a couple of forgers, nothing particularly exciting. And uh, this was not the the dungeon of torture and depravity that the French uh, citizens or the, the French mob, at least, had been led to believe. So they they grabbed this guy. I mean, back to what happened. They grabbed this guy, Delaunay. Uh, he gets you know gutted, head cut off, the whole thing. And they murdered all the guards inside as well. They did that up close and personal with knives and clubs. And this was a turning point. I mean, this was an attack on the state institutions of Louis the Sixteenth and, and the march on Versailles, which became a, a very uh, nasty, bloody affair, followed this. And they took uh, Louis and Marie Antoinette and brought them into Paris as prisoners. Uh, the Bastille, again, another apocryphal, another fake Part of this is people say, oh, that the citizens of Paris or that the common people just tore it apart. They actually brought in a builder and some architects. And over a series of time, with a lot of help, they they completely pulled apart uh, this old um, this old castle, the Bastille. Uh, And it was later on that the the guillotine and the grotesque uh, march of death to it uh, would become the the hallmark of the French Revolution. But this was the uh, this was the beginnings of that political violence. And it's interesting because in retrospect, uh, this was ju- this was mob violence, and it led to a revolution uh, spurred in, in large part by envy and resentment. It, very different from the ideals, although it tried to share some of them in the early stages of the American Revolution that came before it. 
the French Revolution turned into an all-consuming affair where everyone became a target, and everyone thought they were in on it at first, and then they realized that they were actually uh, subject to the craziness that they had started. But there's a lot of revisionism. I mean, the fact that now in France, Bastille Day, or, uh, well, Le 14 Juillet, uh, Le Fête Nationale, which is what they call it. They don't call it Bastille Day, just a side note. Uh, that they mark this with military parades, fireworks. It's very similar in the celebrations to our 4th of July, but it's not their National Independence Day. It's really the beginnings of the violence of the French Revolution, and the French Revolution went into an incredibly dark place, uh, turned into a totalitarian despotism, uh, ended with Napoleon becoming an actual despot uh, instead of a a collectivist despot uh, or despotism, uh, so it's interesting that this is it's a, a day of celebration when it was really a, a haphazard, messy mob running around uh, trying to get their hands on weapons and then completely outnumbered a few government guards and employees and killed them all. Uh, yeah, after and then seized a lot of guns. So that's the that's the truth of uh, Vasile. So, my friend, Mario, you can be so excited. Go celebrate this weekend. Go drink the rosé wine. It's okay. Drink the rosé. Don't be shy. Have a little brie, perhaps uh, un peu de camembert. Sit outside, uh, listen, listen to a little uh, Edith Piaf. Maybe watch a movie with Jacqueline Deneuve and uh, Catherine Deneuve. Oops, I got the name wrong because maybe I've had some rosé. You never know. Um, And with that, my friends, with that weird little French interlude, uh, happy Bastille Day to those of you who have a little French, uh, little French heritage. Um, Have a fantastic weekend. Uh, Do please check out the new gear we have up on BucksExton.com slash store. Uh, That's where you can go. BucksExton.com slash store. You can get Team Buck gear there. And I certainly hope you do. And uh, also, uh, please do check out... uh, Facebook, facebook.com slash Buck Sexton, and on iTunes, Buck Sexton with America Now. Subscribe to the show. Uh, have a fantastic weekend, everybody. I'm really looking forward to hanging out with you next week. Uh, tell a friend about the show this weekend if you get a chance. You know, if someone's just like, hey, what are you going to be like, have you heard this guy, Buck Sexton, on radio? I think it'd be worth your time. They say, oh, do I have to pay for it? No, it's totally free. You can listen on the iHeart app or download his show from iTunes. And with that, uh, my friends... Have a fantastic weekend. Get a lot of rest. See you on Monday. Shields high.